Target Audience Podcast. Each episode, I discuss a film with a guest who shares a personal connection to the film we discuss. They are the target audience, and I attempt to get on their level. This is a podcast about empathy through film. I'm your cisgender, straight, white American male host, Ben Miller. My guests include a diverse group, including today's guest, uh, Portuguese film critic and costume designer, senior contributor at the Film Experience and Writers for uh, other magazine, Magazine H and uh, Photogenie, I believe I said that correctly, uh, the world's most loquacious film critic, Mr. Claudio Alves. How you doing, man? I'm good. <laughs> loquacious, yeah, that's probably a good description. <laughs> I I was like I like to I like to sprinkle a little something in on every on every guest introduction and I I was like what what can I make the Claudio laugh it's like it's, you, the good thing about it is you're very self aware of your own yeah you, you, uh, of of how you write yeah you could also say needlessly verbose or something <laughs> well loquacious was a it 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 seemed to suit your your style say the the the, the big nice word to go with it. Um, Claudia, it's such a such a blast to have you on here today. We're going to talk about a really interesting movie, but before we get to that, I got to start the thing like I do every single episode. If a film executive wanted to make a movie specifically for you, Claudio, what would that movie have as far as the elements of that film? Well, um, it would have to be sort of like a form above plot kind of deal. Mm. I'm very much uh, I'm very much in, in favor of vibes based cinema instead of plot. <laughs> yeah, um, it would have to have exquisite costume design because again, that's one of my main things. I love like an emphasis on collective work, maybe because I I study theater, etc. Mm. It's sort of what I most value about theater and film work. It's I really like and I really like to see that reflected on media, this sort of collective effort and this love for the rights of everyday and people working together. Um, I love relationships between adult siblings, complicated ones when they're represented well on cinema. Like mm. that, that, that is a perfect way to get me to, to be on a movie's side, even if everything else is terrible. Um, <laughs> film above, above digital. <laughs> because yeah, I, yeah. I'm one of those pedants. <laughs> you're you're a purist. I just think it's pretty. <laughs> I like pretty I, things. I, I, <laughs> see, I, I've I've always whenever people have asked me that before is are you a fan of film or digital? And it's like, well, I think I don't care as long as it's suiting a purpose. Yeah. Like if I look at a movie like Collateral, mm-hmm. I'm like that movie needs to be on digital. It does. The the does. the idea of how that film is shot on digital adds to what the film does and stuff like that. Now, uh, like you look at a movie like Oppenheimer, it's like the idea of it being on film is, is the absolute peak of what that film is meant to do. And, uh, this film is probably in the same ideal. Um, you know, you get, you get a lot of these, uh, kind of film nerd auteurs and (laughs) you can definitely see exactly what they're going for. That leads perfectly. You know, you're talking about, costumes you're talking about uh family dynamics you're talking about awesome lensing lensing of this film 
that leads perfectly into the film we're talking about today. We are talking about Phantom Thread. Paul Thomas Anderson, written and directed uh, from 2017. Uh, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, as I said. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis so far in the last movie he's made. Uh, let's hope not. But uh, And then also co-starring uh, Vicky Creeps uh, and Leslie Manville. Um, some other people show up in smaller roles, but them three are essentially uh, the... Uh, backbone of everything that's going on. Uh, big success back in 2017, a late breaker. Uh, Oscar nominees including Best Picture, Best Actor, Supporting Actress, and Costume Design. The excellent costume design by Mark Bridges actually won the Oscar uh, back in 2017. Claudio, can you do us a favor and give us a quick rundown of the plot of Phantom Thread? So Phantom Thread is set in the 1950s, post-war Britain, specifically London, and it's about Reynolds Woodcock, um, a fashion designer, more of a traditional dressmaker with mm. extremely fussy and as his rituals and everything must go according to his will. Um, the film's main focus is on a relationship he forms with his new muse, Alma, uh, an immigrant waitress he meets by chance one day, and it examines their growing relationship, their romance, and the um, very weird dynamics through which they work their way. There is poison, poisonous mushrooms. There <laughs> is go- there are ghostly apparitions of a late mother, and some Hitchcockian references. Um, and at the end of the day, there is an happy ending because these are fucked up people, but they <laughs> they sort of find a way to work things out. Um, it always reminds me of the, uh, uh, there's Chris Rock used to have a joke about, um, two people need to have some similar, uh, similar, uh, likings to essentially coexist. It's like, you can't have somebody who's a born again Christian and somebody who's a crackhead, but two crackheads can stay together forever. This is kind of the idea behind the two crackheads can stay together forever. (laughs) They both find their weird little thing and that kind of propels the movie. Um, I'm curious, what's your, what's your kind of your history with this? Because like, I, I watched this film a few times back in 2017. Uh, the first time I watched it was one of the more memorable cinematic experiences because I watched it with my wife. And we watched it, everything happened, and then, you know, he gets poisoned the first time. And then, like, whenever he starts acting up again, me and my wife go, uh, joking, like, ah, time for more mushrooms. And there she is, <laughs> guiding more. And we're like, ah, this is incredible. Like, it's just, uh, what is what is your experience with, uh, with this film? Your history. So, I- I actually only got to watch this film in early 2018 because of Portuguese releases. Sure. Um, and I watched it, and this is why the film sort of has such a special place in my heart, after sort of the, the first big breakup, romantic breakup mm. in my in my life, the first time I really sort of collapsed a, romantic, a serious romantic relationship long term. Mm. And it was oddly comforting to watch this film (laughs) makes sense and to find value in what i had experienced even if it didn't end well Mm. and also i watched this on the day of oscar nominations Mm. it was a it was a press screening early in the morning and i just fell in love with it i was feeling exhilarated and then on the train back home I was trying to get an internet signal to watch the nominations live. And I wasn't expecting a lot for Phantom Thread. 
but suddenly director actor supporting actress it was amazing yeah and it it, it just it just lifted me up so much and it's as you said it's one of those films that i go back to time and time again it seems mm. like i always discover something new to love about it it's it's a it's a surprising film for how rewarding it is on rewatch like it's not it, it when you try to explain it to somebody on paper it's kind of a hard film for somebody to get into like to hey uh, you should watch this movie about this uh this car, this this uh hook tour uh designer who makes dresses and then the woman he's with and his sister's there she's like well what happens and it's like well like you don't want to spoil it but at the same time you're like some stuff happens like you're not going to be expecting what happens and um it, it's it, it's such a funny like it it it's it's like i said it's difficult to get across exactly why this film you talked about vibes as far as the film that uh films that attract you this is very much a vibes film this is a vibes and not, not the vibes like you would normally think of it's like ah you know cool like it's like you just get on the wavelength of this film and it's super rewarding yeah and it's it's weirdly funny this is one of the things that yes i i always kind of forget about the film and rediscover every time I watch it. And Paul Thomas Anderson does refer to it as a romantic comedy. And as <laughs> nutty as that sounds, I think it, it, it makes sense when you're watching it, especially the way Daniel Day-Lewis plays Woodcock. It, <laughs> there are there are a lot of moments where, where, you're, where you're laughing along with the film. Like the, the well in that big dinner confrontation scene when he says like do you have a gun like four or five times it's 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 you know the entire scene is almost horrifying but at the same time you're like do I have a gun do you have a gun do you have a gun? stop it you petty kids and then like the little the little like jabbing things that Vicky Creeps does like the pour at the end when she's pouring yeah. the water and just makes it as long-winded as possible <laughs> oh this movie's so bitchy in a good especially you know we. Let, let, let's not beat around the bush anymore and let's dive into Leslie Manville and the iconic Cyril Woodcock because Leslie Manville is just... it. It's hard to put a finger on who Cyril is as like a person. She's more of a character than she is like an actual like fully formed human being. But at the same time, like she is so protective and intelligent and so and aware of everything but man she's so bitchy in this movie it's so great and the random things she says just to everybody she's pretty much the only person who gives it to uh gives it back to reynolds and actually um is is not afraid of the consequences essentially yeah again i really love the the dynamic you see between brother and sister mm. you you can kind of just imagine the years of coexistence between the two of them mm. since since they were working together on their mother's second wedding dress to today <laughs> and how she's clearly the one keeping the ship afloat of the house of Woodcock. <laughs> yeah yeah uh because it's, it's you a, just know a very good point if she wasn't there this would all collapse because he doesn't even care about the clients. He's shouting no. about nobody fucking cares about what Mrs. So-and-so <laughs> thinks. Yeah, yeah, Tinker's fucking curse. My favorite line in the whole movie. Um, 
it, you know, even the, I mean, the, the, the entire, uh, the entire, like, little, like, uh, kind of side quest uh, about Barbara Rose, uh, Harriet Samson Harris, who is, again, oh. she's hilarious in this movie. Harriet Samson Harris is great in this movie. That entire side quest of, like, you know, she, she pays for this house. She's got a lot of money. But it's the exact opposite of what Reynolds wants in a customer. Like, he wants... He wants the Countess Henrietta played by Gina McKee. Like, he wants the prim, proper, sweet, like, et, like bow down to your reverence, as opposed to this woman who is just an absolute train wreck of a mess. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's so much fun. I... I, I I wanted. I, I'm. I've always heard a lot of different interesting aspects on it, and I, I've never really been able to pin it down specifically. Do you kind of apply some sort of syndrome or affliction to what Reynolds has or how Reynolds is? A lot of people have said, "Oh, he's ADD or he's he's obsessive uh, compulsive." Or so. do you necessarily think of it in those terms? In, initially, I didn't. I sort of saw it more as a subversion of the of the asshole artist and his muse yeah. and this sort of deal. But in in the past few years, revisiting the film and also having a neurodivergent nephew, mm. um, things like his sensitivity to sound really sort of gains another another reading when I'm rewatching mm. the film. Doesn't yeah. mean he's not an asshole. But it, it, especially it informs the way I see the relationship between Cyril and Reynolds, where you can see, oh, she has learned how to manage and she understands how ritual and routine are important to him. And there is a kernel of, of honesty and real advice when she's talking to Alma after that first breakfast scene. This is not just yeah. being bitchy. This is her yeah. teaching Alma how to deal not so much deal in a negative way but cohabitate with Reynolds yeah and this is interesting because later it seems that Cyril really respects Alma when she's arguing with Reynolds which is surprising mm. because she shows nothing but the same to the first woman we see with Reynolds early in the film it's essentially like I I, re- I always remember when I was younger I kind of had a um I have a very specific personality when it comes to like around my family members and my brothers. And I always, at least when I was younger, when my brothers would bring around new girlfriends, I would kind of like poke them a little bit to see, it's like, how cool are they going to be about this? And I like, not like physically poke them, but like kind of personality wise, like go a little further than you would expect somebody you just met to go. And if they kind of responded well to it, I'm like, okay, now I'm on board with this. But if they kind of bristled, I'm like, I don't like this girl. So I think it's kind of the same dynamic with that because, yeah, Cyril, like like you said, the thing Cyril is like, you know, she's like, you know, mornings are tough when he's working. He's got to be in the zone. And if it doesn't, it kind of ruins the rest of his day. And then, of course, it, she's not against being like, maybe take it in your room, like bitchy and shit like that. But still, like, it's the kind of the complex, the complexities of the two. Um, you know, so in hindsight, you, you see, you see, man, the, the, this movie got, you know, six Oscar nominations. That's awesome. And then if you look at everything, you're like, I see two Oscar nominations that are baffling at missed. One being, it didn't get a screenplay nomination, which I, it's, 
it's such a strange thing I don't understand. The screenplay is essentially the, propul the propulsive factor for everything. But at the same time, Paul Thomas Anderson has said it, like you said, much of a collaborative effort. He said Daniel Day-Lewis probably should have gotten some of a screenplay credit. But more than anything else, where's Vicky Creeps? She's incredible, yeah. and she came out of nowhere for this film. It is sort of amazing how much she has grown in terms of the international film community since this film came out. Yeah. She was nobody, and now she's she's a name, especially in European cinema. And mm. she's such an amazing discovery. I, I still think she's the best performance in the film, even now I that agree. I revisited. And that is saying something, because Daniel Day-Lewis and Leslie Manville are giving it their all, and they're amazing in it. But she's just on another leave. And that thing of, you mentioned the argument scene when she sort of prepares a dinner date for the two of them alone in the atelier slash um, townhouse. Mm -hmm. And she really gets the, the anguish of that scene on her side. But there is also uh, an allowance for, for comedy for very tw a very twisted sort of humor that bubbles up within that scene. Even when faced with things like Reynolds' very xenophobic comments, like, why don't you f go back to where you, to where you came from? Uh, with, <laughs> yeah. with some more uh, profanities in the middle. Um, sure, sure. And she is so good at playing the passive aggressiveness of Alma when she's sort of putting Reynolds in his place with the first with the poison tea and then with the omelette. Like <laughs> the way she looks at him and then just adds more butter to the frying pan because she knows he hates it. It's 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 one of my favorite thing my favorite random things about that scene. It's like everybody kinda knows it's like, okay, something's up and Reynolds knows something's up. The the butter and then the and you know that he detests too much butter. Slab of butter again. I'm just like yes. Like it's it's because you're so. It, it's funny because even though you know she poisoned the tea the first time, even though all the stuffs happened, you're still fully on her side. You're never uh, you never like oh she's evil. She's actually the villain. It's like no no no. You're totally like poison that girl. Poison him, girl. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's and and that little that little like sideways look at it just like i'm being nice but you know what's up like it's it's so wonderful and the the fact that she, like i think it's very difficult for an actor to play with paul thomas with uh, with uh with daniel day lewis i think it's he's such a force of personality and just a, and generally the characters he plays are so forceful it's hard to share the screen with that and try to pull focus because it's it's probably a little bit overwhelming and you like you look at you look at there will be blood everybody doesn't try to overdo it and they try they they realize what he's doing and they very much step back lincoln's the same way like and there have been very few times in essentially all his films that daniel day lewis has a partner who is like i don't care I'm going toe to toe with this guy, and Vicky Creeps does from the jump, and it and her lack of, uh, I guess, polish, and the fact that she's not the most famous person in the world at this time, lends lends that character such grace and 
you know, the dignity of where she grows from where she is at the beginning of the film to where she is at the end. It's, I agree, it's a remarkable performance. And I, I always think that in a, the way they play with each other and sort of testing each other's limits, it, it almost looks like a BDSM <laughs> dynamic without, without <laughs> yeah. props, you know, or with, yeah. with silk instead of leather. And, you know, yeah. he, he, he sometimes <laughs> needs a dom and she's there to provide him with one. Kiss me, girl, before I'm sick. I mean, like that's the, the 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 if you were to sum up the perfect the line in the film that makes kind of it's it's one of the last lines in the film. And it's the one that kind of resonates exactly what the film's been trying to do. Kiss me, girl, before I'm, kiss me, my love, before my dear, before I'm sick is the exact kind of everything that's going on. Apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson said he the inspiration for this film came. He was sick. And uh, his wife, Maya Rudolph, comes and sits by his bedside, looks down, and he, he, he goes, she has never been more in love with me than she is right now. And <laughs> it, that's kind of where it grew from. Um, you talked about uh, about, about uh, earlier about a collaborative effort, and this movie really was a collaborative effort. Uh, famously, no cinematographer. Um, and the way this movie looks, that's a miracle. I, I don't know how this happened. I mean, he said it was a... Uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, if you have the Blu-ray of the film, it has a reel of camera tests where you see Paul Thomas Anderson sort of trying out different film stocks, different lighting, and it, it does feel like you're watching someone sort of test himself as a cinematographer and trying to see where if he can get that look that he wants. Yeah. And it's it is it, it, the end result is brilliant. It's just it's gorgeous. Absolutely, it's it's a it's a beautifully lensed film. It's incre- it's impeccably lit. There's no point where you're like, you know, for as kind of moody and gothic as it can get, it doesn't really. It's never un unvisually sharp. Like it's it's always very clear uh, what's going on. Um, okay, the question I had for you is there like a scene a line or a visual from the film that like whenever you think of this film what's the scene or line that you're like this is the this is the one i always go back to if there is a scene it is their their la- their dinner together at the end certainly mm. it, it's it's the scene that i always go back to it's the one that makes me laugh the most is i think the peak of the weird messed up romance that this film embodies but mm. I, I i really like the entire sequence of them just not to repeat because we already talked about it i really like sure. the entire sequence when he when he first gets poisoned when he ruins the wedding dress and the the house is basically all working to get to reconstruct it to get it ready in the morning and then it culminates with his proposal to Alma, with Reynolds' proposal to Alma. And I love it for so many reasons. One of them is that I love that he says it's an ugly dress because I, I hate that dress. You didn't like, okay, that, this is gonna, I was gonna ask because like, I was very curious because the, the dress itself is very interesting visually because like the actual like silken part of the dress is like under the breasts and then there's lace over it. It's almost 
perverse looking. So so tell me tell me your thoughts about that dress specifically. It is always interesting to look at Reynolds Woodcock's creations within the film because I think he's not necessarily modeled after some of the great innovators of the time like Balenciaga and Dior. And, and you can say that by his clientele. It's mostly aristocrats that you see. Actually, you only see aristocrats in the film. Yeah. And so I, I think of him more like a Norman Arknell, which, uh, like, if you've seen um, The Crown the first few seasons, he's the designer that works mm. for the Queen. Okay. So sort of sort of this out very fussy, very old-fashioned. He, he hates modernity. He fucking hates the word chic. What is chic? <laughs> chic, yeah. <laughs> and like, and that is present in almost all of his designs. He, he loves to use satin or silk or zibelin with lace overlays. He has that thing that he has this Flemish 17th century lace that he saved from the war years that he uses to create a pink dress for Alma at one point. And it's very fussy, very conservative. It's sort of, you can see his love for control within his everyday life present mm. in the way he imagines fashion, which is mm. why I love the costumes out of this film, even when I don't like the designs, because they are character work. Yes. And... And, and so often in film, costume design is, does character work by informing who's wearing it. But here it's informing on who created this. And mm. everything is super symmetrical in his work, which is why I love, for example, that when Alma does that impromptu dinner, she's wearing a dress that she made, and it's asymmetrical, and he obviously hates it. That's why he hates it. And it's, it's even it's, interesting... It's not his style, Yeah. It's even it's even interesting whenever the last the 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 lady that is being dressed whenever he leaves to go talk to Cyril, she's got her dress on and she's like getting it set. As soon as he le as soon as Reynolds leaves, Alma puts on a ribbon and puts it on one side, not in the middle. It's on one side again, asymmetrical. So is there like a is there like a, uh, a design in this film that you're like, oh this is this is the best. Like what's what's your what's your top design of dress or anything in this film what do you think of like as far as the fashion goes the one that i like best as a piece of a fashion is the the first costume he makes for alma mm. um just about just looking and i love the bolero jacket with those curved lines that she wears for their first dinner out together for storytelling purpose i really love the the um, the first thing she wears in the um, in the fashion show, which almost looks like a a stylized version of the waitress uniform she has. I was thinking the same thing. I thought it was, I thought she was a maid, uh, and then it's like a a more styled version. That's a great yeah. great purpose, and I I want to you know it's probably like inspirational, obviously. And, and I noticed for the first time, weirdly enough, yesterday that. It's not actually a dress. It's um, it's a two piece, and the the upper part is um, is like a cardigan, like the one, not like the red cardigan she wears when they go out for dinner for the first time when he takes off her mm. lipstick and everything. And 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 then there is the wedding dress, which I think is ugly. 
<laughs> you're right about the sort yeah. of the, the perverse the perversity of sort of the, it has that foldless satin and the the breasts connect with with the neck in this overlay of lace yeah and it's very much what's described in the script like she it's cool tone because she likes silver she doesn't like gold it's lace instead of, of pearl and also he loves lace lace is super i don't particularly like it it's super fuzzy super reynolds woodcock and it it just it looks to me <laughs> it looks like an imbalanced design and kind of ugly and in a very fussy way the way the lace yeah. goes right up to the top of her neck it doesn't look particularly flattering even when you see it on the mannequin but it is very mm. grand and it is extremely yes. him and <laughs> I, I like I, I like that it's not this fairy tale ideal dress it's just oh this is woodcock's neurosis on on one garment and I love at the end of this sequence that the proposal scene is all in one shot. And it's sort of a callback to that superstition that single women shouldn't work on wedding dresses because they'll never get married. But here he is proposing to Alma, who just spent the night working on this wedding dress. But it's also interesting that she only says yes when the wedding dress is completely out of frame because the, the scene is shot ah. in a cushion. Slow like zoom. Only, yeah, only when his work is invisible within the frame does she say yes. It's like a, it's almost like a power play with the camera. Excellent. And this is this is it, this is what PTA does, man. Uh, this visual storytelling, man. It's like even even I didn't notice this before, and that's an excellent little Easter egg that I'm gonna have to go out of my way. I'm gonna annoy my wife with it the next time it'll be on TV. And the next, <laughs> I'm gonna be like, look, the wedding dress is gone. Now she says yes, and you know, there's there's a because, level because of she waits she waits a long time until she says yes. Yeah, yeah, it takes her a while, and then you know, I think one of the more powerful little moments in the film was just before that when she's working on the wedding dress and finds his and finds his little. In inlay of uh, never cursed. It's like it's like oh, like this is something like he's trying like as as much as as fussy as he is and all these little things. He's kind of a romantic. He wants these things to actually work out for people sometimes, and that's why he puts that little thing in there. And that you're like that little never cursed kind of again just adds a little bit of humanity to this guy that doesn't seem like he has a ton but it just gives that little bit and like just propels it that much for god oh this this is a great movie this is an excellent movie um <laughs> um before uh so uh i still have a couple more questions but uh, i mean this film was not exactly a monstrous hit and I'm not exactly surprised it wasn't a monstrous hit. It's a it's a kind of a weird movie to be. But do you feel like this film is more broad-minded and hits you specifically? Or is this meant more for a specialized audience for, like... PTA is not one of those directors who is like, oh, you know, the big box office success of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's not really what he does. He's not really... He's, he's like, give me these mid-budgets... And I'm going to, you're going to, you, you give me 30, I'm going to give you 40 back. And that's essentially kind of what you expect. It's, but 
Do you think this is meant for more of a specialized audience for what PTA... Do you think he cares about the audience? I mean, I think almost any director, especially that's working in a sort of a mainstream model like he sort of is, is in a way worried about the audience. It, it's it, This is actually goes reminds me of a, a, an argument I have with a lot of my friends because we work in theater, etc., and it's, I think we must always be working for an audience, even mm. if in the end we're not doing any compromise for them. Because if nobody sees this, this is not art. This is a, a, like a diary. It's the Correct. act of being watched that, that, makes it, uh, that makes it a performing art. Yes. So we must always be thinking of who is watching, even if we're not working mm. for them. That's always, And I think part of that is present in his films. I don't think they're particularly inaccessible, but mm. again, this is relative because I I spend I go to a lot of film festivals. I watch a lot of very obscure stuff. Sure. So what what to me is accessible may not be accessible to others, but at the same time, in the experience that I have showing this film to people, I think it is actually something that a lot of audiences can get a lot of from. It's not, like, the thing about fashion, of course, I that know a lot about historical fashion and and find pleasure in just watching the scenes of people working yeah. in, in the garments, I will get something out of it that a general audience won't. But mm. at the same time, I think there is enough that is general about this film. I hate to use the word universal, but I think anyone that has been in a relationship at some point sort of can get something out of this film, either by rejection or of what of the insanity that is happening or by seeing part of them. Because at the end of the day, I kind of agree with Paul Thomas Anderson. This is a romantic comedy. This is a romance. It's a romance with a happy ending. It's, it's, if yeah. you kind of take a step back and you see the, like the structure of the film, it's a meet cute. And it ends yeah. with them having a child and sort of being happily ever after in their very particular way and i, I think <laughs> I, I think yeah. it resonates I, I think it's 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 a film that is is open to to people taking from it whatever they want and i think if you give it a chance even general audiences that are not used to the sort of art house thing they can take something from it i i've seen it in my life when i show this film to people that even if sometimes they are a bit taken aback by the fact that not a lot happens in it yeah um, they usually get in a movie, even if nothing else, by the charisma of Daniel Dillard in this role. Mm. And it's you know it, it's a it's really interesting what you said. Get what get what you want out of it. Essentially, I I what, a previous episode we discussed a, a film that was like kind of LGBT but not, and you could be like, oh, is it friendship cinema or is it actually gay themed? And he said he's like, well, whatever you think is the right answer, like. You can essentially, it's like, oh, is this film about uh, about trying to check your, um, you know, keeping your partner in check, whatever means necessary? Yes. Is it about gross rejection of this and that? Yes. It's essentially, you can kind of put your own kind of spin on how you want to take this film. Like, like you said, you watch this after a breakup and you're like, okay, this is kind of you were in the right mindset for it. I watched it with my beloved wife right next to us, right next to me, and I got a lot out of it about relation. And, you know, we make mushroom jokes all the time about it now. So, I mean, uh, that kind of thing. I, it makes sense. Um, 
one thing I wanted to add before uh, before move on. Um, I am not one of those people who think about movie scores much, and it's not one that really. It's it's not something that I automatically think of or pay attention to a lot in film, but it's kind of hard to ignore the Johnny Greenwood score of this film. It is. It's it's almost like a secondary character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, all the propul- the propulsive little tinkling, the uh, the 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 you know adding to the movements, setting moods, and then like during that dinner scene, it cuts, and. It, it, it whenever it cuts, you're like it. It, it it's so ever present too. Whenever it cuts, you're like, oh, something's happening, and it's 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 one of the few times in my life where um, I've watched a movie and I'm like, without this score, this movie has an entirely different mood and settle. Like the setting, the score is a part of it, and like you said, it's collaboration. Yeah, the score is is is, is just beautiful to listen to. Even when it's just doing something like the instrumental part of, um, I think it's my foolish heart that mm. it has at one point. Um, it's it is beautiful and it gives a rhythm to the scenes. It's what you say the propulsive, especially at the beginning of the film. It it picks up the pace. It gives a gives it a a constant movement to it. Um, it is. Again, it, it touches on the psychology of the characters, like the the repeated motif of the of the phantom thread track, that sort of repeats I think three times in the film with variations, and it's always at significant points in Alma and Reynolds' relationship, and it sort of erupts at the end in the cooking scene while the camera is just yeah. looking at their faces and the bubbling eggs. <laughs> yeah. And again, the, the score really helps sort of give almost an, an abstract ravishment to to something as prosaic as watching eggs bubble in butter in a frying pan. Yeah, it's it really makes you, uh, you know, it, it, the, the the propulsive aspect is a really interesting part where, you know, kiss me dear before I'm sick, and then that swells yeah. and they kiss, and then the montage of his impending sickness and kind of like in the background like the it's it's the the dialogue's not the not the most important thing it's the the score at that point where it shifts and it's such a uh it's it's such a big swing to take at that point of the film to be like this is mostly score based and uh i think it said it this is a this movie is 130 minutes and i think they said uh 96 of them is has the score in it so that's a massive score for a film. Um, all right, Claudio. So when it comes to venturing outside of the target audience for people who don't really want to, don't really think of this film as something they want to get into, uh, what do you want this? What do you want the audience to understand about this film? Um, I would want the audience to understand that this is a film about a very fussy intransigent man but the film itself is not entirely uh, <laughs> is not necessarily in agreement with him and I've seen a lot of people sort of reject the film before seeing it thinking it's going to be the same old story about the asshole artist and mm. the muse who puts up with it but it's not it's a subversion of that it, it's very much questioning the, the, the thing of the genius artist I, I think 
rewatching this film this time, I actually thought of Tar. And mm. how, how Tar sort of gives you the possibility that maybe she's not a great conductor or a great composer and is just going by on reputation. There, it's a reading that is possible to do based on what that film is doing. And I think you can do that too in Phantom Thread. But here, I think the director is really saying, is really pulling you to that reading. It's is really saying you're allowed to do this. And I think a lot of aspects of the film are that. you It's not a film that constricts the audience. It allows them to take what they want. If you want to see this as the story of a genius artist, I think you can do that. If you want to see it as a sort of twisted story of this old-fashioned idiot that is just going by on reputation and needs <laughs> to be put in its place, yeah. you can see that. You can see a beautiful love story. And again, you mentioned that moment with the score swelling up, and I think the film is giving you permission to... Okay, this is very psychotic in a way, but it's also romantic, (laughs) you know? But I also think you can see it as a toxic relationship. Absolutely. People, I think, sometimes tend to think these sort of art house films are very needlessly complicated and restrictive in what you you can take it like there is a right interpretation that you have to puzzle out and i think yeah. that that's not true especially if this film this is not a puzzle you don't need to be kind of like just feel it and i think it's very sensorial it's very beautiful in the way that it's just with the music with the images i think against all all appearances it's a film where you can turn your brain off and just enjoy what's on screen and, i agree and, and especially like yeah. like you said for an art film that's not that's not something like for a independent film uh, generally oh. independent i mean this is uh, as independent as it gets its focus features and it was released by universal <laughs> but still like like considering you're like what what kind of what this film it kind of the reputation it has you don't necessarily need to like super pay attention. Yeah. Like like you said, there's not a ton of plot. It's essentially one guy running fashion house, sisters there kind of manage the place, meets this girl, and off they go. And it's like, well, what happens? Stuff like it's 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 the minute there's no there's so much minutia that you can catch but not have to be conscious of like to to really understand yeah. like like you said the 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 wedding dress going away that adds to it and you know all the you know the sound design of her eating Cheerios <laughs> on a Switzerland mountain again hilarious like it <laughs> and and Daniel Day Lewis's little turn and pfft, the like, the exasperated like little puff of like what have I gotten myself into. Um, oh, I didn't get a chance to talk about any of the uh, little supporting performances uh, because they're really fun. Like Gina McKee showing up as as the as this Countess Harding, um, Harriet Sansom Harris just being hilarious, uh, knowing exactly what she needs to be there. Um, and then uh, uh, was it, is it Julia Davis as uh, as Lady Baltimore, the ultimate like. Oh, I hate I I my heart breaks for you, your first wife's, and you know, it's like the ultimate passive aggressive, like oh, you suck, like <laughs> these th- this uh, PTA is so good at just like peppering in these little character actors and filling out the little edges of the world 
Even the even the little old lady, uh, um, you know the, I I I'm, I can't even think of her name. The, uh, the the like main seamstress lady mm-hmm. who comes in. She's like she's just like a little bit of. She doesn't really have much to say. She just comes in. And it's like he he's damaged the dress, and you know that that's another scene where it's like it's funnier than it should be. Wait, who's fallen? Shoe polish. Who's shoe polish? It's like, well, Cyril, we're very clear on what's going on. Why do you keep repeating this? Like, <laughs> and, and that woman is a non-actress. She's the real seamstress. Yeah, like almost all of the all of the team of the Owls of Woodcock is real people. Some of them who have worked in these in these real fashion houses over time, and you can see their years of experience in their in, just in their sort of perfect motion it's like you, you yes. can see these hands have done this a thousand times before absolutely and yeah it's, it's it's just it's such a beautiful casting that doesn't necessarily call attention to itself yeah and yeah it, that, that thing where you say that you're just you feel that you're just seeing a part of this world but it exists far beyond the margins of the film yeah and Ari- Aria Samson Ares is just the epitome of that she's amazing and i love her sort of maid of honor <laughs> just <sort> of <laughs> doesn't know how to react to alma and reynolds on full heist film mode going to take the dress away <laughs> again a hilarious scene again like it's like it's like she's asleep in the dress like just just and and then Daniel Day Lewis like parking in front of the uh, that room and saying hi to her son like it's all like if if you would be like convince me this is a comedy that scene is the one where you're like this is a comedy like <laughs> I've just recently sort of uh, understood that that character is based on a real person Barbara Hutton yes and the the dress is almost a comp- an exact reproduction of what she wore and it's sort of a very tragic story but it, it's turned into tragic comedy in this film mm-hmm. and again that, that's another thing like you don't need to know that to enjoy the scene but it sort of adds another layer everything is so deliberate about this film everything is so full of meaning that you can pick up on or not pick up on and it's at the end of the day it sort of doesn't need to dominate your your experience of it it is. It feels very open, and I just love it. it it's a, it, it's a film that I put on sometimes to have fun or just to when I need to enjoy film. something. Yeah, it's a comfort. I agree. Film. I, like how weird as that may sound. <laughs> it's funny. I, I I told myself when I started this podcast, it's like anytime somebody picks something, doesn't matter what the film is, I'm gonna rewatch it before I watch it before we do the episode. And with this one, I was thinking, this is the first time I don't need to rewatch the film. But I was like, I'll throw it on anyway. And even though it's over two hours, it just flies by. And I was like, well, I'm not, not disappointed I'd watch it again. Like, it's very much a rewarding watch. Uh, it's uh, it's on uh, Netflix right now, at least in the U.S. So uh, if y'all want to go check it out, please do so. Claudio, before we go, I had a couple more questions. This is my favorite question to ask because people are multitudes. I'm always blown away at the things people enjoy. Give me a film where you are not the target audience that hits you in a specific way. Um, 
I thought about this because earlier this year I did a series for the film experience on erotic thrillers. Oh, yeah. And not the best response from the readers, but... (laughs) 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 But it, it was very interesting to confront all of these films that don't necessarily seem to be made for me <laughs> as a target yeah. audience. Um, they're not really made for a queer Portuguese guy who loves clothes and slow cinema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because erotic thrillers are all like propulsive action, straight-centric. Yeah, and some of them very perverse. But very. I found myself falling in love with a lot of them in one director that I am feeling myself drawn to with each film I see of him is Brian De Palma. And mm. Body Double just completely <laughs> floored me. I adore it. It's probably one of my favorite films. Maybe one of the, my favorite things I watched this past year. And it is so different from Phantom Thread and from the sort of the things I, I said in the beginning in terms of target audience, but it just, it just works for me. And part of it is, I, I think, just the formalistic insanity of it all, but I also enjoy the perversity of it. Uh, maybe you have to be a bit of a pervert to enjoy the film, but maybe I have, because <laughs> I really like it. it. It's so much fun, even if... At the end of the day, when I my, when the reader like you're writing a lot about films of violence against women, and, and like I understand that, but you know films don't have to be moral all the time. This is certainly not one of those films, but I I'm really into it, and it, it's weird after talking about Phantom Thread all this time and this delicate film, and loving these. <laughs> Crazy! Oh, a drill! A drill is a penis, and it's going to kill women with this metal. <laughs> it's 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 so it's so funny. Like my relationship to erotic thrillers, especially from like the eighties, is all tied to essentially puberty for me. Because being a straight kid in the nineties, you're like, well, these erotic thrillers are on TV. I know they're like edited in a certain way, but it's like, hey, you can get what you get. Like, Melanie Griffin looks pretty good. Like, I'll take what I can get at this point. So you see those type of things. Like, it's like, I watched, like, just because I was a horny teenager, I watched Body Heat way younger than I should have. Like, because <laughs> I, I tried to seek it out. And I'm like, oh, this is really sweaty and stuff. Like, like, like even as a kid, I'm like, okay, you know, all the lasciviousness and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it, it's it's... It's always funny whenever, like, you kind of go in with a, like, it, like in my case, like, uh, the first time I ever watched Time Me Up, Time Me Down, I was young, and I was a horny teenager, and I was looking for the sexual aspects, and it took so long to get there, I was kind of wrapped up in the movie before <laughs> it, it really, like, <laughs> uh, it kind of got to that point, but I mean, that's a great choice, great choice. Um, by the way, how dare you, readers... I know the film experience <laughs> readers are mostly gay men who love actresses, but come on, people! Like you got to branch out a little bit. Like, ah, it's fine. Okay, Claudio. B- before we go, give me uh, give me two or three other films that describe Claudio as a film goer. What is the whenever you think of yourself, like if you want to understand what your film tastes are, what are those films? Um, 
it's sort of a cop-out answer, but I'll just say that I'll just give right away the two films that I sort of considered for this episode, apart from Phantom Threat, which were Bahrain's okay. Velvet Goldmine. Ah? Uh -huh. Which is, you know, it's it's got glam rock, it's got music, it's got amazing Sunny Ball costumes. More costumes? Yes. <laughs> it, has, it has an amazing sense of memory and playfulness and queerness. It's amazing. I love it. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I've been indoctrinated into the church of David Bowie by my father since <laughs> an early age. Yeah. Um, and the other one was Luca Guaranino Suspiria. Hmm. Which I was very skeptical of because, again, like Daddy Wadjento's film is sort of a masterpiece. Well, not sort of, it's a complete masterpiece. <laughs> Candy colored one. Uh, but it just. It just took me by surprise. I just loved it. It's it's my choice for best film of that year. Um, it it's got all of that about artistry and creative process, and a certain perversity and just everything is very deliberate and there is a lot of meaning to be found within it. But you can also just watch it as a crazy horror film. Like you don't need to be thinking a lot about intellectual cerebral stuff when you're watching a body be completely destroyed by. <laughs> And, Invisible you know, forces. You know, any any opportunity to see Tilda Swinton in old age makeup with a big fake wiener, why not? Like you gotta you, like not a movie that completely understands what it has and we're like, okay, we're gonna really lean into this. Like I, I really like that. Like I, I went into it I watched this uh, the new Suspiria before I watched the old one because I didn't really want to compare mm -hmm. the two. And so I went into it, I was really taken aback by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, my my running joke for the yeah. longest time was how it is is uh oh what's her, why what, can't why am I blanking out uh the Lee girl from Suspiria, um Dakota Johnson yes Dakota Johnson excuse me I don't know why I just blanked out there my my running joke for a long time was is Dakota Johnson good and Suspiria I think was the time I was like okay I'm 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 convinced she is like. And I had that exact same experience. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really? For the longest time, I was like, I can't tell if she's a good actress. And then after Suspiria, I'm like, okay, I've turned. Like, I think she is. Like, I, I was for a long time. Yeah, she's, you know, she, she's good. She's she's doing good work. I'm not really inspired by this. Is she a great actress? I don't know. And I had a friend who was like, mm. yes, she is. You have to pay more attention. <laughs> and then and then I went to Suspiria. Okay, fine. I get it. You got me. And, I, I surrender. Then, then you oh, no. then you watch like The Lost yeah. Daughter and yes, yes. Oh, yes. and I also went yeah. to Suspiria because I I love horror. I'm a big horror nerd. Yeah, and that I don't think has been very sort of at all touched upon during this target audience conversation. But I love horror, no, no. so I needed to be a horror film. And Suspiria just I appreciate I that. It. Oh, so uh, I always uh, I always like to ask this just uh, for uh, for guests who are not American. So you are Portuguese. So give if if uh, if somebody wanted to uh, kind of entry into Portuguese cinema, what's the film that you would be like? Let's uh, this is a good stepping stone into the world of Portuguese cinema. Mm. Oh, that is really a putting good you on the question. spot. Um, because I'm perfectly aware that. Some of the Portuguese films I like the most are not the best entry points. Oh, anything. really? Really? Interesting. Like, so you're, like, you're more than... The, the, the... Go ahead. Because part of me wants to say Arabian Nights. You have to watch all nine hours of it. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But I understand that is not an actual good constructive answer to this question. Right, right. So I would probably say something like taboo from the same director from Miguel Gomes, but it's it's much shorter. It's it plays it plays with um, cinematic languages that I think a lot of people can understand, like silent film and colonial imagery, etc. I think you can understand it, and it's relatively. It's not accessible. What the hell am I saying? It's not, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I think it's a good entry point. It, it was for me because. Uh, it came out in 2012 at a time when I was trying to get more into Portuguese cinema and it really did it for me it really helped so nice. if it helped me maybe it can help others well hey what, whatever it takes to get yourself uh, in, into that world and by all means uh, any chances for people to branch out we uh, we highly recommend especially on this podcast please people uh, don't start with Manuel de Oliveira I know he is the most important Portuguese author don't start with them because you may not want to watch anything else. And no, you, you may not want. You may not like if like things like um, Valo Brown, Abram Valley. Those are are things for when you're already in love with Portuguese cinema. Because if you're watching them now, you might just give up. <laughs> you, it's it, it's like it's like starting. It's like oh, I don't know two plus two, and then jumping into advanced calculus. It's like okay, so it's yeah. it's it's too it like it's too much as an entry point. Okay, it's good to know. So you know, be careful out there, fans, if you wanna if you wanna jump into the world of Portuguese cinema. Uh, <laughs> that that just that just about does it for this episode of the Target Audience. Thank you so very much for joining us out there, uh, Claudio. Thank you so much for joining us. What do you got to plug? You are a writing machine. Uh, so what you got going these days? Well, you can find my English writing on the film experience and also some long-form essays on Fotogeny. Also some short things, like I did recently a, a 250 capsule for a series of short films they had, so you can find that. If you read Portuguese, I write a lot for Magazine HD. I have over a thousand articles already posted there, if you want. And you can follow me on most social media at ClaudioAlvesDC. It's I'm on Twitter. I'm still calling it Twitter. I don't care. I get it. You're not. You're, you're not. You don't have to convince Musk, me. Musk will not win. Uh, letterboxed. Uh, I'm on Blue Sky too, and I, I have I have invitation codes if you want to come in. Uh, so yeah, find me, follow me, and you know. Uh, Claudio just wrote a couple uh, awesome articles. Uh, one about uh, Happy Halloween with Hercule Poirot. Um, one talking about uh, Emily Blunt, and then uh, talk about category confusion. I really liked your uh, supporting and lead category uh, back and forth. You know, talking about Ryan Gosling and Glenn Howerton uh, if they're lead or supporting. You know, obviously this is a it'll be a never ending thing. Um, <laughs> I, like uh, obviously the uh, Carrie Mulligan and the Lily Gladstone of it all this year being the kind of propulsing force. And then Ryan Gosling is. What is your opinion on the Ryan Gosling lead supporting you personally? Okay, so um, I was very adamant that he was lead for a long time, but then uh, Matthew Stewart, who does the screen time yes. thing, I was shocked at how little he is in the movie. It's surprising, and I have been sort of bullied by people into accepting that he's supporting. <laughs> 
part of part of me is still like easily like Anthony Hopkins is leading the Silence of the Lambs. He is Ryan Gosling is leading Barbie. I don't care about street time. Yeah. It's I get it. There. I get it. It's the but for the purposes for the for the purpose of like my my Oscar spreadsheets because I have a lot of them. I'm probably going to put him in supporting just because it's more convenient. Because at the end of the day, I'm very principled, but I'm also a little bit of an Academy voter. Absolutely, I, I'm always the same thing. It's like, oh, this came out in 1930, but it was the 31 Oscars. Cool, it's 31. Like, I'm I'm very much the Oscar side of things. <laughs> like, well, what they decide? Yeah. Well, Claudio, thank you so much. Follow Claudio, uh, like I said, on all social media. You can follow me on Twitter at NebIsBen on Letterboxd and NebIsBen on Instagram at Neb.IsBen. Check out my website, IceCreepForFreaks.com. You can also follow my other writings on the Film Experience and Cinema Scholars. You can find me on other pods. I'm the David Thewlis Podcasting. Please follow the podcast on uh, Twitter at TargetOddPod and on Blue Sky at TargetAudience. You can also follow me on Blue Sky at NebIsBen. And enjoy the show wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, wherever they are available. Remember, get out of your bubble, expand your horizons, and just watch more movies. On a bed made of water of your tongue Tone deaf with a headache for one Back to the water below Alone as a float like a stone